indeed, Father, give us a vision of your glory as the ruler of all. Rule in our hearts this morning, Lord. Rule in our service and make all that we do acceptable to you on high. And we praise, praise you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're still in Romans 14. Been here a while, I think. I was reading from Martin Lloyd-Jones the other day on, on this commentary on this section, and he mentioned that it had been 12 years by when he got into this section on Friday nights at the uh, Westminster Chapel in uh, the 50s and 60s. I think it went from 55 to 68, if I'm not mistaken. I think he retired right after that. But 12 years it took him. I did it faster, right? <laughs> Nowhere near as thorough as the great Martin Lloyd-Jones. But... Um, the Apostle Paul is a sneaky one. He sneaks in a doctrine here, and I have to stop here and deal with it. So we're going to do that this morning. Um, Romans 14, 10 through 15. I'll read verses 10 through 15. You should be familiar with them by now. Paul says, Why do you judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Father, we ask that you add the clarity of your spirit and the wisdom of Christ to this, the reading and presentation of your holy word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's fairly self-explanatory what he's saying. He's been repetitive. We know where he's going with this. <clears throat> um, but then he goes into this whole thing about judging, and then he goes into this whole thing about judging each other, and then of God judging all the saints. An interesting concept. We don't talk about it much, but we will this morning. But... Let's lead in with context, as the apostle always does. Why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt, which means hatred of your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I think we know by now that the chapter establishes the fact that there are differences between believers. And, 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 and Paul's calling them things indifferent, which means they're minor things. They ought not to be things you judge someone severely for and certainly don't come to the place of showing contempt for a brother or sister in Christ. These are personal preferences. What we hope for is that the liberties we enjoy 
have been placed under the scrutiny of the word of God so that we can go to God and say, I've looked into this in my heart, in my conscience. I believe it does not offend you, so I practice it to your glory. So we give our lives to Christ. We give our whole being to Christ. We hold nothing back, so knowing that some of the things we practice or enjoy are unacceptable to others, we ought to... We ought not reach our conclusions about them haphazardly or without the counsel of God. In other words, if someone objects to something you're doing, you might want to look at that thing you're doing and give it another look through the lens of the word of God and say, is this right before God? Now, as with all things, the counsel of God for each individual is what? It's filtered through your conscience. Everything is. It's almost inescapable, but as we learn in the Word and as we grow in Christ and walk with Him day after day, year after year, for a lifetime, many of us, for me, a good 40 years, we come to the place where we hold off on our conscience until we know the truth of the Word of God. We bring our conscience in line with the Word. Somehow we're able to do that in our spirit. Our spirit is complex enough that it can look at itself and examine itself. So surely some of the things in the faith seem strange to us that others do. And some of the things we do probably seem strange to them. Some things seem as though they ought not to be. And we wonder, why do they practice that? Or why do they do that? Or why do they enjoy that? And we presume in our own human wisdom that what they're doing that we have no taste for must be wrong. We want to be careful about that and and introspective. So some take liberties that others dare not take before God. You know, it's interesting. We just partook of the Lord's Supper. Originally, it was wine and bread. Now, They didn't have grape juice. Nobody knew how to make grape juice. As soon as you crush grapes, they begin fermenting. So there's different levels of fermentation that would happen. But we've substituted things for different social reasons over the years. And now I heard Billy say we have gluten-free bread. You don't have to worry. Now I'm sure the Lord had high gluten bread. No, I'm kidding. They wouldn't have had gluten at all in that that time, right? Am I right? (laughs) Um, But we substitute things. There are some churches over the centuries um, that have used wine, um, even in times and in places where they would otherwise be uh, a teetotaling congregation, but they didn't know what else to do until Thomas Welch, Welch, friends, Methodist uh, Eucharistic minister, invented a way to make unfermented grape juice. And so he did that somewhere in the mid-1800s. If Tom was here, we'd get the exact date and hour, but I don't see him. Um, So we do these things to protect one another. Uh, The warning is that the liberties we enjoy, we've brought before the Lord and found them unobjectionable to him. We want to make sure that what we do is unobjectionable to him. We don't want people partaking of it and feeling like it could harm them. And so we make the, the case before God that we 
since they're symbolic anyway, we replace them with what we consider to be more innocuous elements, I suppose you could say. So on that basis, on the basis of, of, of looking into the word of God and making sure the things we enjoy are unobjectionable to him, um, then may they become unobjectionable to ourselves, but not the opposite. We don't want to go before the Lord and say, I approve of this, therefore God approves of it. We'd rather say, God approves, therefore I approve, right? Wouldn't that be the right <clears throat> sequence? So what we've deduced from the overall spirit of the teaching is that being right is overrated. And it's overrated to the extent that rightness of opinion becomes insensitivity to the dearly held scruples of a brother in Christ. And I think we can say that the so-called stronger brother is the one who is doctrinally right insofar as his positions on liberty are founded on the word. I'm going to say that outright. The stronger brother has the correct view of things indifferent. They can't hurt him, and he knows it. He does not fear that the food and drink he partakes of is in and of itself evil. We talked about that a lot. That's the, I've given to you that as the definition of superstition. When you ascribe evil to something other than man. Things are, I mean, creation fell when man fell, but, it's, but creation isn't sinful. It's fallen, but it's not sinful as man is. Um, so it's in the use of the thing that the sin emerges. So meat offered to idols has none other than an imaginary effect on the spirituality of the user. Paul offers us this doctrinal conclusion. He said, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. There's nothing unclean of itself. But correctness of opinion is second place to love of the brethren, and that's the, that's the drumbeat that Paul keeps giving us here in this, um, in this chapter. So the second part of that verse reads, but to him who considers it to be unclean, to him it is unclean. And he says, yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Love, friends, must not be sacrificed for the sake of liberty. Now, we've labored over the context, con concepts rather, for some weeks now. So if we're not yet settled with regard to the responsibilities of love. Let's call this chapter the responsibilities of love. We should enter into prayer and study of the passages that make for peace between individual believers and unity in the body of Christ. Unity in the body is highly prized by the Lord and should be highly prized by us. For such things are paramount with regard to Christ's intentions for the church. And so we read that the sacrifice of Christ the gifts of the Spirit, the offices of the church, all things that the Lord devised and put into the church for our edification are there, have been put in place, in place rather, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, and then he adds this to the Ephesians, till we all come to unity of the faith. We're supposed to come as a body. We're not supposed to come as the stronger brethren and the weaker brethren. 
right? The weaker brethren judging the stronger and the stronger over here despising the weaker. He wants to break through these things. It's a glorious expectation, friends, that the church as a whole would arrive at the judgment seat of Christ as an intact body, striving together for its corporate glory. Note that our verse draws a line from judgment to hate. Why do you judge turns to why do you show contempt? Why do you judge or why do you despise? Remember, when you're judging someone, that can very easily turn to contempt, and then you're in dreadful sin before God. This is the place where a personal decision becomes a personal condemnation. That's when you condemn yourself in praise of your liberty. And note, I do not speak of divine condemnation when I say that. I'm not talking about a loss of salvation. We're, try to keep in mind the, the context of, of the book of Romans from beginning to end is that it's speaking to the church. Paul is assuming he's talking to regenerate elect saints. All right? So I'm not speaking of divine condemnation. I'm talking about personal condemnation. I've said all along that the passage is only for believers, and it is only for believers, friends, who partake of the blessings of church membership. There's so many what Ken used to call lone rangers out there. This can't be for them. They're not daily eating and drinking with their fellows in the Lord, as the church should be. So it's only for believers who partake of the blessings of church membership and fellowship of a local body. It is admonishment only for Christians who delight in the company of their brethren. That's who this is for, Christians that get together. But it seems that delight can turn to judgment and judgment to contempt. You've heard it said, familiarity, familiarity breeds contempt. Have you heard that? Now, that's not a scripture verse, but it makes sense. Paul went out sometimes and quoted from pagan sources as well, if you remember. But um, familiarity breeds contempt. I don't know who said it, but it's in common parlance today. We say such things. In other words, friends, it's natural to think less of each other as we learn more of each other. Unlike Christ, we tend to th- love him more the more we learn of him. It can be the opposite with one another, and Paul is trying to head that off. So I have to tell you, I've been grieved by this very thing for my 40 years in ministry. Um, and on my honor before God, I have committed myself not to judge a person on the basis of disagreements over small things. And I'm not just talking about food and drink. I'm talking about some things that are um, important, like baptism. We have disagreements, in the Reformed churches particularly. Reformed Baptists believe in a different form of baptism, and they believe it's rooted and grounded in Scripture, than our Presbyterian brethren look at baptism. But I don't let it go to contempt. The same with the Sabbath. Have you ever noticed how Christians, I have to say, the Reformed churches argue about Sabbath observance more than anyone else, and in doing so, they disturb the joy and delight of the day. You know, and it's interesting, because Lloyd-Jones did talk about this to some extent, that it was true even in his day. 
Um, when I think of the things we've gone through, the discussions we've had over the years, the stomping of the feet, the coming in and out over what we would require of one another um, on the Lord's Day, it is amazing how many variations of this you can, you can find. Um, do I give the whole day? Can I do something for myself after church? Is there a recreation time? Um, does there have to be an evening service? Do we have to remain? I've, I've known Reformed churches that come to service at, at 10 in the morning, and you have to stay there till 7 at night. And in the meantime, there is, um, you know, the fellowship of the saints and then the second service. Um, we didn't do that. We didn't develop a habit of the second service for the simple reason we didn't own our building for 15 years. We didn't have control over it. Um, <clears throat> But it's interesting, we had a, a family come to the church once a, a while ago, and they were in a Reformed church, and the last day they were at their church, because they, they lived right near us, and so they began to be part of our church and were part of it for many years. Um, the last day when they were at their church, they got invited to someone's house in the interim between the, the main service and the evening service, and it was in the uh, church was an hour away, so they used to come home and have to go all the way back. You would think someone would have thought, if we're going to require people to stay around, and some of them are coming from far distances, why don't we invite them to our homes and fellowship with them in, during that interim time? That was the first time they were invited. Um, So I won't judge a person on the basis of disagreement over small things, or in some cases, big things. Baptism, Sabbath observance, end times beliefs. End times belief. Not that it's an essential thing, but it's an important thing, and it's certainly an important subject to consider and to discuss. Um, as a pastor, I consider it my calling to be long-suffering. I've read a lot of the famous preachers, and pastors of history, and if they weren't long-suffering, they were going to suffer long. You have to wait for people to come around. If there's a doctrinal or practical breach in the body, I'm determined to teach my way through it. I learned that also from Lloyd-Jones. Speak to it. And I've developed a patience towards others in this, for it's my experience also that most learners develop slowly. And they take long periods of time. This frustrated Luther to no end. <laughs> and to the, to the uh, extent that when he was dying, he said he had made no difference in the body of Christ at all. Um, <clears throat> so for the sake of Christ's sacrifice, I've learned to love first, to teach second, and thirdly, to wait to taste of the fruit. Friends, fruits are seasonal things. Some growing seasons are longer than others. And the husks of some fruit is thicker than others. I'll leave it at that. Amen. So the first part of the verse is academic. It's a conclusion on the teaching thus far. Why do you judge your brother? Um, but what of Paul's reference to judgment? He brings in this, that's why I say he's a clever one. He, he, he suddenly, he's talking about unity of the church, but he brings in this concept of judgment. Now, we might ask, I think rightly, that have not the elect already been judged? I mean, isn't that what the first 
eight chapters, nine, ten chapters of the, of the uh, epistle were about. What's all this talk about judgment? I've held to the belief that thus far, the apostles' words in chapter 14 are only for the elect. Well, that's true here as well when he talks about judgment. He's not suddenly talking about the unbeliever. He's still talking about us. He doesn't say, why do you judge others? He says, why do you judge your brethren? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Did you know we come to judgment? We don't talk about it a lot, the judgment of the elect. Um, He couldn't even ask that question if it was among unbelievers because he couldn't call them brothers. So if Paul's addressing a congregation of saints, why does he still invoke universal judgment? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Anyone disturbed? You know these verses. I have many of them for you this morning. But why talk of all this future judgment? It seems that in the first place, the judgment of God will be universal. Everyone comes to judgment. No one escapes the scrutiny of Christ the judge. All right? Jesus said, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Anyone ever see that great painting by Michelangelo on the west wall of the Sistine Chapel where Christ the judge has his hand up like this condemning some of the believers or some of the um, people that are before him as they crawl out of their graves. And over here, he's blessing the others. It's, it's an awesome depiction of Christ the judge, and I can't say Christ the judge without that picture coming into my mind. Um, but he said, the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth that they, and shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. He's talking about all people. So we have to reconcile this with things like he uh, spoke about in, um, in Romans chapter 8. But when we talk about judgment, we talk about, first of all, there's the concept of the judgment of the individual, the unbeliever. There's the concept of talking about judging believers, and there's also a judgment. We call certain things judgments, right? We use the word judgments. What is that? That's an expression of God's wrath. There is a judgment upon this land, we could say right now. In fact, if you go back to chapter 1, what did Paul say about it? The wrath of God, right? The anger, the wrath of God, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness an unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. Friends, much to the chagrin of dispensational theology, God is content to judge the world while the church is still in it. Right? Seems to be what he's saying. We have to be blind to reality if we don't see that the very character of of the judgment of Romans 1 is being fulfilled in our time. And so I read to you this. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves 
who exchanged the truth of God for their lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. You see, God can judge you by bringing a tsunami upon your society, or he can judge you by stepping back and leaving you to yourselves. And that's what he's talking about here. And let total depravity have its full sway in the land. He gave them up to vile passions. Whose vile passions? Their own. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. We see so much of that in our culture today. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Is this really the time you want to bless same-sex marriage? You better tear Romans 1 out of your Bible if you're going to do that, Pope so-and-so. the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. It's an insanity, friends. There's the judgment. We only, you know, human reason is a gift of God, but if he stands back, it becomes a depraved reasoning facility or faculty, I should say. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness. Need I say more? There is a judgment on the land. So there's this ongoing general judgment of society composed of the saved and the unsaved. We live in a world that's being, a world that God is receding from. Now this, of course, harkens back to verse 9 where we read from last week. For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Now I'm not here to say that ours is the first time in history nor are we the first society to see the hand of God in this way. To punish societies, the Lord God, you'll notice, does not need to strike. All he needs to do is pull back. Pull back his restraining hand of prevenient grace. It seems he, he's content for the time to leave us to ourselves and see if in our own wisdom we'll not fill up the cup of his wrath, heaping sin upon sin. Surely our society is in judgment. But the verse clearly speaks of not only society, but it speaks of individuals. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess. Confess what? Their sins to God. That's what he means in this context. Elsewhere he says confess in the sense of confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So what of the church? I've, I've held from the beginning of the series that Romans is written to believers. I say it again. It comments on the condition of unbelievers, but only to the saved is the teaching directed. So I hold to that principle here as well. The church will see a judgment as well as the world. And he's warning us here. And what he's saying is, and he's tying this in with his context, how dare you judge one another knowing that God's going to judge all of us? It's his business to judge, not ours. 
Now, people will say, well, didn't you just judge by saying that certain um, church leaders should not uh, bless homosexual unions? Well, no, I didn't judge it. It's already been judged, and I'm repeating God's judgment. I read it to you. I didn't make that up. In fact, I've told you before, as a young Christian, I would have come to different conclusions about things like that. No, when you come into the faith, you don't get to make all your moral judgments on your own. You have to appeal to the ones that are already made. So there is a judgment coming upon the church, but it's, it won't be a judgment unto salvation or perdition. That's not what it's about. It will be a, what some have called a judgment of rewards. Have you heard of this? You will. As soon as I read the passages, you'll, you'll know they're very familiar. I c- cannot say that I know what is the character of heaven. I really don't understand it. You know, there's so many things in the word of God that are declared without being explained. And then you're, you're in a controversial you know, um, conversation with someone, and they say, how can this be so? And like, I don't know. God said it and didn't really tell us all the intricate mechanics of it. He just said it would be. So there is a judgment coming. So we don't talk about that a lot. We don't talk about the judgment of, of rewards. Uh, I've known certain churches that did talk about it and talked about it a lot, and they said if you join the, their church, you'll... You'll um, be able to plug yourself into more, um, you know, ministry uh, positions in the church, and you'll therefore reap greater rewards in heaven. And they advertise their church that way. Maybe so, maybe not. But such a thing as this judgment goes against the popular evangelical belief with regard to the nature of eternal society. And so I wonder if even we, have not bought into the diversity, equity, and inclusion model of eternity with God. I think we think it's all equal once we get there. Of course it is. I mean, communism's bad now, but certainly heaven's communistic, right? And non-discriminatory. Surely there'll be no classes of people anymore. How could there be classes of people in heaven? That would be too worldly, too competitive. And of course, everyone knows competition is wrong because somebody has to lose. You can't go to heaven to lose. So it's a quandary. But I have to read to you the scriptures, and I think you'll find that um, you can't make this stuff up. We've all heard it said, you've heard people say, look, I'm saved, and that's all that matters to me. I don't care how I got saved. I don't care why. I just know that I'm saved, and that's good. I'm forgiven, and I'm content to stop there. I don't need to hear anything else. I've heard people say that. Of course, that's fine for you individually, but you can't really pass on your faith because the faith is made up of a lot more than just a handful of salvation doctrines. That's why you have whole epistles like the book of Romans, very complex, talks about all kinds of different concerns for Christians. So I won't quibble about the doctrines of salvation with people who say, look, I'm saved and that's all I care about. However, it seems there's still a goal worth striving for. I'll read you one. I'm going to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, where we very famously, in, uh, in verse 8, people love to, a great uh, 
memory verse, they like to say, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And then verse 9, Not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then we leave out verse 10, which says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. No, you don't do good works to get into the kingdom of what you're in. There's good works there. Not only that you should... um, seek to do, but you should recognize they were prepared by God for you to walk in them, is what it says. And so we don't know how the society of men in eternity will relate to one another with regard to status and rewards. We're all saved, but are some more saved than others? You know, they used to say we're all equal, except some people are more equal than others. Um... So what's the nature of this future judgment of the saints? Verses 11 and 12, for it is written, and he quotes Isaiah here, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. So then each of us will give account of himself to God. He doubles down on this. There is a judgment for the individual. We're going to come before God and he's going to say, why did you do that? Or why are you doing that? Now, I've held, again, throughout the series, what? I've said doctrine is dangerous, right? Some say that grace is a dangerous doctrine. Why? They say, have you heard this? It's a license to sin. Friends, it's not a license to sin because a license implies that an authority gave you the right to sin, and God didn't do that. However, it is freedom to sin, isn't it? Grace is freedom to sin. He left it up to you. You can choose to sin. You can choose not to sin. So the doctrine of grace is dangerous. It leaves too much up to us, and we're sinners. We love to sin. So it's the presence of God's Spirit within us, along with the extent to which we treasure the instruction written in the Word of God, that keeps us from continuing to sin. Yet many times and in many ways, we still do offend God. Now, I've said that the stronger brother is the one who is comfortable with his blood-bought liberties. He does not question them. He simply enjoys them. He may even glory in them. As Spurgeon once did when he lit a cigar among his students. And he declared that tobacco was a gift from God and he would smoke it to the glory of God. Very famous um, incident in the young Spurgeon's life, although Spurgeon grew He held that if he ever found that he was smoking to excess, he would quit on the spot, he said. And then one of the students asked him, what constitutes smoking to excess? And Spurgeon said, smoking two cigars at the same time. (laughs) In other words, I ain't stopping. I'm smoking to the glory of God. Um, I want to say to you that the, the prince of preachers was at a stage in his life when he gloried in his liberties. As a drinker of beer and wine and brandy, he also welcomed the controversy that went along with those things as the temperance movement began to rise in Baptist England. Take note, though, that where the young Spurgeon gloried in controversy, the older Spurgeon repented and saw his glorying as excess. If you read his life, these controversies in his life depressed him. He may have even died of depression. He saw his glorying as excess. What he did there was clearly too boisterous. It was wrong. He knew it, 
Glorying is excess, and excess is sin. And he became a noted abstainer in later life and preached many a sermon on the sinfulness of drunkenness. And he put both things away. Doctrine is dangerous. And what I mean by that is that a point of truth can easily be poisoned by a particle of extremism, right? The same is true of liberties. Wherever pleasure is attached to liberty, the saints must be wary of impending danger. Why? Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, the weaker brother's position is that to ensure safety, we must defer to abstinence. Abstinence will save us all. Just don't do these things at all. Right? The stronger holds to self-control, the weaker holds to abstinence. I've always said that abstinence is not of the fruit of the Spirit. Self-control is the fruit of the Spirit. So the weaker brother needs to consider that the liberties of others that he condemns are not just things that he doesn't like. If a person has no taste for wine, it's easy to abstain from it. If a person enjoys wine, it's easy to abuse it. Abstinence and abuse are two sides of the same coin. I fail to see how self-imposed abstinence is a higher calling than self-imposed moderation. An abstainer may fail as easily as a partaker. Saying I abstain doesn't stop you. It just stops you for the, the moment. And so the judgment the apostle speaks of may fall upon the abstainer as well as the partaker. But make make no mistake, Paul assures even the elect that we will all bow the knee and confess to God the things done in the flesh. Now before I get to that judgment, I want to remind you of the things we know already because we have to be able to keep two or more thoughts in our head at a single time. All right? We've been two years now in the book of Romans. We started our third year last week. We of all people ought to be freshly acquainted with the assurance principles of God's word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul could not say that and then say, but you're going to be judged for what you do in the second place. He couldn't do that. If you're If there's no condemnation in the first place, then there's no condemnation in the second place. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Remember the famous words of Jesus that say, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So faith insulates you from a condemning judgment. These were the great assurances that Luther heralded in the Europe of his day, which so enraged his Roman Catholic detractors who tried to hold their members captive to works and priestcraft. So what judgment is Paul talking about? Well, there are many passages where the Lord speaks of two kinds of servants. I'll read one from Luke, Luke chapter 12. Jesus says, And that servant that knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. He's talking about his servant shall be beaten with many stripes. 
But he who did not know yet committed things deceiving of stripes shall be beaten with few. So there's two types of servants, those who are bad and those who are worse. From 1 Corinthians, I think it's more, it said more clearly and elaborated on more in uh, 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul writes, According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work. Those are works done in the Lord, friends. Talking to Christians here. The fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. He's already saved, but he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But listen to this. He himself will be saved, yet as through fire. There is a coming judgment of rewards. I don't know what else to call it but that. From 2 Corinthians, we read this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. Now, it's not just Paul that talks about this judgment. Peter talks about it. Um, in fact, Jude talks about it. I don't have a quotation from Jude ready for you, but Peter wrote, For the time has come for what? For judgment to begin. Where? At the house of God. And if it begins with us first, Peter adds another concept here. The house of God gets judged first. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And then he writes this, now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? John writes, and now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he's righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Now, I really don't know how to reconcile the teaching with regards to the character of the church in the next life. He doesn't tell us these things. We'll all share that life in eternity. Um, and I don't know what it will look like, but it is a doctrine that is declared, though not explained. But it is our doctrine. And it is a warning that the judgment... That at the judgment, rather, before we enter eternity, we may suffer loss, friends, and we may suffer shame. Of what? I'm not certain. But it's clearly stated. It seems to me that this doctrine, the judgment of rewards, is a safeguard to the saints not to lose heart, not to grow weary in well-doing, and what? Not to judge one another. For we should take care of our own house. Seems to me that the verse is a reminder that none of us will be responsible to give account of the deeds of the heart 
of someone else. They're not going to ask my opinion on you. They're not going to ask your opinion on each other. So Paul writes, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. So with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. In other words, I could judge myself and find my, and acquit myself, but what good would it do if the Lord still finds fault in me? Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. I'll close with a quotation from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Well, with regard to this this matter of... um, of a pending judgment for the saints, but also um, as an encouragement to pastors. He says, I'm not judging you. It is not a part of the preacher's business to judge. We are not to judge one another, but it is a part of my business to say that I shall be judged my faithfulness in expounding the truth. If I hold anything back for the sake of popularity or for the sake of applause or for the sake of your good opinion of me, I shall have to render an account to God. I can't stay here and tell you that God said something he didn't say, or tell you he didn't say something that he did say, that pertains to us all. I have to give the whole counsel of God. And the preacher here points that out. And so he writes, You are not my judge, and I am not yours. But every man and woman shall give an account of themselves unto God, unto the Lord. That is Paul's final word with regard to the spirit in which we approach the whole question of matters indifferent. Father, we ask that you settle these teachings into our hearts, that we might grow to maturity by recognizing the declared truths of your holy word, explained or unexplained, If they are declared, they belong to us, and we praise you for them, and we glory in them. In Jesus' name, amen.